the burden of our message tonight is not to reveal who the Antichrist is, but rather to reveal who the Antichrist isn't. Exactly right. So, as was already noted out already, the very first verse of the book of Revelation tells us a revelation of whom? Jesus Christ. Now, many people have a misconception that the book of Revelation is all about the Antichrist and all the things that go along with it. Well, friends, though the Antichrist and the power that goes along and all the activities thereof are talked about very much so in the book of Revelation, I want to again be clear that what we're studying is a revelation of Jesus Christ. But if Jesus wants us to know something about the Antichrist, should we? Yeah. In fact, the question is, if Jesus wants us to know, the answer is always yes. Whatever he wants us to know. So if it's in his book, he wants us to know it. But the ultimate goal is not to tell us about the Antichrist, but it's to more clearly reveal Jesus Christ. So before we begin our study about Jesus Christ and his enemy tonight, we're going to begin, as we do each night, with a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for such a beautiful day. Thank you for this group of people who are here together to study your word. And Lord, I ask now that you would send your Holy Spirit, not just in a general, vague sense, but as you promised he would, that he would lead us into all truth as we study your word. Let him knock on the heart of every person here and open the portals of the mind to see clearly what your word says. And more than just an intellectual study, Lord, help us be spiritually nude by the reading of your word, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take out our study guides, study guide number six, Antichrist, what's that word? Evidence. Antichrist evidence. This will be the burden of our message tonight and tomorrow night, looking at the evidence that Scripture gives us of who the Antichrist first isn't and then who the Antichrist is. Antichrist evidence, part one, and we'll begin right there in Revelation chapter one and verse one, page 1174 in your pew Bible. 1174 in your pew Bible, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. We've seen this passage before, but I want to reiterate what it says here. The opening words of the book of Revelation are these, the revelation of whom? Jesus Christ. Now, after this, there are going to be beasts. There are going to be plagues. There are going to be things that might seem scary, but let me tell you something. Anytime you're with Jesus Christ, you're safe. Amen? So there's no reason to be afraid to go past those opening lines because right at the beginning he tells us this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. But let's continue reading. Which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sit and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. And then notice what it says in verse 3. Not only is it okay to go to the book of Revelation, but what does it specifically tell us? Blessed is he who what? Reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. And keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, I'm going to pause right here. We love that. Blessed is he who reads. You're like, check, I can do that. Blessed is he who hears. Check, I'm doing that right now. And we think, oh, good, as long as I read it and as long as I hear it. But what's that next one say? And what's that word? Keep those things which are written in it. 
for the time is near. God is looking for people who will hear his word, read his word, and then keep his word in preparation for his soon coming. But again, the book is all about Jesus Christ. Let's go to Revelation chapter 12. We've been there several times in this series already. Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. After we saw the original casting out of Satan, we then noticed that Jesus came and died on the cross of Calvary, effectively casting Satan out of heaven for a second time, the sympathies of heavenly beings. And we read here in chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. So Jesus Christ is the focus of the book. He's the victor in the battle with Satan. Satan has been kicked out of the courts of heaven. He's been kicked out of the sympathies of heavenly beings. Christ is victorious. I want to make sure that we get that squarely in our minds because as we go and look at the Antichrist, it could look like he's got a master plan to really ruin everything. But friends, don't forget, the revelation is of Jesus Christ and he wins in the end. Amen? All right. So it's safe to go on. Notice again in verse 11, and they, that is the brethren, that is us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, overcame him. Notice it doesn't just say has to deal with him or is tempted by him, but in what condition are they? They're overcomers, right? Not in their own strength, but by the blood of Jesus. His victory, he wants us to share too. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Apparently they had a zeal. They're willing to lay down everything for this truth. They're living for Jesus Christ. So clearly the focus in the book of Revelation is on the conquering figure of Jesus Christ. And it makes sense. Go back to John chapter 17. The same author, but in a different book, this time the Gospel of John. Chapter 17. Verse 3. Jesus Christ himself tells us why it's so important to know about him. And he makes it very plain. One sentence. John chapter 17 and verse 3. And this is eternal life. Now, friends, don't you want to know how that sentence finishes? Right? If this, whatever he's going to talk about, is the key to eternal life. Here it is. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, Jesus is speaking here to the Father, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. Think about this. What is our only way to heaven? What is our only way into eternal life? Jesus Christ. To know God through the person of Jesus Christ, his representative who he sent to show us who the Father was. If you want to go to the Father, in fact, Jesus himself said it in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the what? Life. And in fact, he goes on to say, no one comes to the Father but by me. He says, I am the only access to eternal life, period. Now, this is a powerful truth for the Christian, that we have victory in Jesus, that we have righteousness in Jesus. We have salvation in only one name, Jesus Christ. So here's my question. It's right there in your worksheet. 
Can you think? Is it possible to think that you're following Jesus Christ when in fact you're following the Antichrist? That's a kind of disturbing thought. If Jesus is the only way to salvation, you want to make sure you're following Jesus Christ. But if there is such a thing as an antichrist, how do you know you're not following the wrong one? It behooves us to know what his word teaches about the antichrist, yes? We don't want to study the antichrist because we think there's any merit in knowing the antichrist. We want to know about the antichrist to keep us away from it so we're securely in hand in hand with Jesus Christ. I want to make this clear. We study the Antichrist not just out of a mere curiosity or like, ooh, what is this shiny new? No, 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 no. I'm not trying to learn more about the Antichrist because I want to know more about the Antichrist. I want to make sure I know more about him so I can stay away and be securely hand-in-hand with Jesus Christ. The reason we study the Antichrist is to get us closer to Jesus Christ. Now, look at the heading of the next key. The next key of Revelation, Satan isn't what? Stupid. Satan is not stupid. Bottom line, he is brilliant. He was perfect in all his ways. He was that, remember that ordained minister in the courts of heaven before he was cast out? Now, I have lived some number of years, (laughs) but not very many. And I don't care who you are in this room, you haven't lived that many years compared to Satan. He has been honing his craft A long time. He is skilled at what he does. And to the same degree that Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost, Satan wants to keep you lost, to get you lost, to separate you from Jesus Christ. Satan isn't stupid. Look back to the book of Revelation. What does it tell us about this enemy of Christ, this devil? Revelation chapter 12 We've been there again uh, already. We're going to go back again now. Revelation chapter 12, look at verse 7. When it describes the war in heaven and Satan's casting out, it tells us something about this Satan that would behoove us to know. Again, Revelation chapter 12, starting with verse 7. And war broke out where? In heaven. That's where the whole thing started, yes? Now, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought... But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Now, was it an actual literal dragon, or is that imagery describing something else? It's imagery, right? How do we know? Well, just keep reading. Look what the passage says. So that great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called whom? The devil and Satan. So we're talking about Satan here, but it's referring to him as a what? It's a dragon, right? It's a symbol for Satan. Now, there's a real Satan, yes? The dragon is, a, is, 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 is imagery, but it's leading us to talk about a real person, Satan, right? And notice what it says about this devil and Satan, this serpent of old, this dragon power, who deceives the whole world. He was cast into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. He deceives the whole world. He doesn't just fight the world, he deceives the world. That's his method for winning. That's his spiritual warfare weapon is deception. John chapter 8, look what Jesus said about him. 
John chapter 8, again back to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. When Jesus was speaking to those who were being used by Satan, for Satan in the courts of heaven, as you recall, we've covered this in previous meetings, but the war in heaven was not a war of weapons, it was a war of words, right? So he didn't come and challenge God to a fist fight. No, 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 no. He kind of peddled ideas around subtlety and sophistry. He was deceptive, right? Look what Jesus says about him and those who follow him. John chapter 8, verse 44. You are of your father, whom? The devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. Basically, he says, you have in you the same spirit that was in him. The same desires that motivated his actions are motivating yours. And what action are these people trying to do to Jesus? They're trying to kill him, right? Is that what Satan wanted to do at the very beginning? Sure, if he could. Now Satan has an opportunity. He thinks with Jesus and his humanity, I'm going to get him here where I couldn't get him there. And he works through his agents, which happened to be the religious leaders of that time, who Jesus is talking to. He said, the desires of your father you want to do. And he tells us what those desires were. He was a, what's that word? Murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the what? Truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a what? A lie. He speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and not merely one who tells lies, but he's also the father of it. He's the one who came up with the whole idea of lying. The very first deceptions, the first falsehoods came out of his mouth. So when it says he deceives the whole world, he's a liar and the father of it. He does not stand in the truth. Don't expect Satan to come along and make something obvious. He's not stupid. He knows how to talk. He knows how to work an angle. He knows how to bring in that false to hook. Look at 2 Corinthians. Look what it says here. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's going to be page 1118 in your pew Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting with verse 13. Now, to give you a little background on this passage, the Apostle Paul, who's writing 2 Corinthians here, apparently is quite frustrated that there are some people going around claiming to be true followers of God, true disciples of Jesus, true apostles, but really they weren't. They said they were, but it was in an effort to deceive people. And notice what he says about them. 2 Corinthians, again, chapter 11, starting with verse 13. For such are what kind of apostles? False apostles. Deceitful workers transforming themselves into what? Does that mean they really are apostles of Christ? No. He already said they're false apostles. But in order, think about this, in order to get you to think they're false apostles, they have to come across as true apostles. Right? Let me tell you something. You think of a false apostle or a false prophet, a deceitful worker. No one is going to be successful in deceiving you by telling you they're about to deceive you. Right? In order to make it work, 
you got to show up looking like the real thing in order to get the false in. Satan isn't stupid. And notice Paul says where they get this idea, by the way. Again, let's go back to verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, he writes in verse 14. He says it only makes sense. Why is that? For Satan himself does what? Transforms himself into an angel of light. Now, for instance, when Jesus was wrestling in the wilderness of temptation with the devil, do you think the devil showed up with pitchforks and a horn, looking like a cartoon figure, saying, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. According to Scripture, how does he show up if he wants to deceive you and tempt you? Like an angel of light, like it's a good thing. All innocent and nice. How did he show up to Eve in the garden? You will not surely die. You can be like God is fine. He doesn't say, Here's some poison. <laughs> it won't work. Right? So he has to disguise himself as an angel. Satan isn't stupid. He knows how to work. Thus it makes sense when talking about end time events. Look at Matthew chapter 24. What Jesus says to watch out for. He doesn't automatically start listing off you know, earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of wars. What's his very first caution? His very first warning. Matthew chapter 24 And verse 4, what does it say? And Jesus answered them, Take heed that no one does what? Now, I know this is common sense, but apparently in order to not be deceived, you have to be aware. He says, Take heed, pay attention, watch out for deception. You have to watch out for it. Notice he goes on to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. Why? For many will come. How? In my name. Some even claiming that I am the Christ, right? Now, you could read that if they were claiming that they themselves are the Christ, or they're saying, no, 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 Jesus is the Christ. I'm in his name. I'm his ambassador. I'm an angel of light, a true apostle. Let me ask you this. If something claims to be Christian, does it mean that it is Christian? No. So apparently... There's true and there's false. There's the original and there's the counterfeit. And Satan isn't stupid. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Page 1141 in your pew Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Here again the Apostle Paul writes this time to his protege in ministry, Timothy. And notice what he explains to him. Verse 1. Now the Spirit, that is the Spirit of God, expressly says. Notice he's saying, saying he doesn't hint or I get the feeling that just maybe it might. He says the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, that is the end times, the times in which we believe we are living in now, in the latter times some will depart from the faith. Giving heed to what? Deceiving de spirits and doctrines of demons. Whew. 
He says, specifically for the last days, just like Jesus said, let be, take heed that none deceive you. Apparently, he said, in the last days, some will not heed that warning, and they'll be duped by demons. And again, I don't believe the demons are going to show up, hi, I'm a demon, I'd like to lead you to hell. No. They're going to transform themselves into something light, something Christ-like, something in the name of, something in the form of, but it's got a hook. It's not the truth. So it comes back to my question that we asked at the beginning. Is it possible to think you're following Jesus Christ when you're actually following the Antichrist? Now, let's talk about deception. This is common sense, but sometimes we don't think through the common sense. Fill in the blank with me here. The bottom of the first page. Deception only works when you think it isn't working. Fill it in. Think about it as you're filling it in. I'll say it again. Deception only works when you think it isn't working. Think about it. If you thought you were being deceived, or if you realized you were being deceived, you wouldn't be deceived anymore, right? Only those who don't know they're being deceived are actually being deceived. Yeah, that makes sense, yes? Deception only works when you think it isn't working. Satan knows, it's our next one, that the best way to get away with something bad is to make it seem what? You think of the illustration. You have two glasses on a table. One is beautiful, clear, pure crystal water. And the other one is a stinky, toxic, horrible, putrid vial that has skull and crossbones on it and it says poison. Let me ask you this question. Which one is more deadly? The poison, yeah? But you're not going to drink the poison. Now, This one might be more deadly, but if they took just a drop of that poison and put it in the water, and then you had two glasses that looked alike, now this one's not only more deadly, but it's also more dangerous because it's deceptive. It looks like the good thing, but it's got the poison in it. Now, how does this have anything to do with the Antichrist? Because now we know how Satan works. He's a liar and the father of it. He's deceptive. He leads the whole world astray. He dresses up as an angel of light. He tries to pass as true, and indeed he's false. And if Jesus Christ is our only way to salvation, and Satan's job, as he has defined it for himself, is to make sure we don't have salvation in Jesus Christ, is he going to show up as the devil? as the picture that the world has painted of, no. He's going to come in my name, right? Now let's go down to the bottom of the page. Many people expect the Antichrist to be a sinister politician or a military leader or some other obviously evil figure. Like, oh, there it is. There's the Antichrist. I spotted him who will appear at the very end of time 
to openly oppose God and wage war against all Christians. They've made movies about this, written books about it, that there's this Antichrist figure that when he shows up, everybody gets a sense like, ooh, this guy is bad. And he looks bad, and he sounds bad, and he does bad things. He's obviously against Christ. And he shows up at the very end of time, and he openly makes war on Christians in the name. Well, let me ask you a question. Is that how Satan works? To openly show up as this horrible, obviously evil figure, persecuting openly the people of God? His modus operandi, how he operates his business, the one thing he's got is deception. And deception only works when you think it isn't working. But many people have this caricature in their minds of an antichrist that's only at the end times, openly opposes God, obviously evil figure who everybody will be able to spot when he shows up. My question is, is that what the Bible tells us about the Antichrist? Scripture paints a vastly different picture. Thankfully, God has not left us in the dark, and his word provides more than enough information to conclusively identify the Antichrist power. Now again, the burden of tonight's message is not to identify who the Antichrist is. It's to clear our mind of who the Antichrist is isn't. Many people have this picture in their head, the one we just described, of this overtly evil, clearly, obviously, against God's people, antichrist figure, who will show up at the very end of time to persecute the church. That's not what the Bible tells us about the antichrist. However, I do believe that that picture of antichrist is exactly what the antichrist, the real antichrist, would want you to think. As long as they're looking for the obvious thing, that gives me cover to do the dangerous thing. Again, the burden of our message tonight, who the Antichrist isn't. Now, flip over, if you would, to the other side of your study guide. The book of Revelation is not the only book to talk about the Antichrist power. Several books in the Bible talk about this Antichrist power. And as we mentioned in our question and answer session, you could read Revelation from chapter 1, verse 1, to Revelation chapter 22, the very end of Scripture, and you will not find in that book the term Antichrist, though the power of the Antichrist is definitely referred to, talked about a great deal. But the word isn't there. In fact, the only place that you're going to find the term Antichrist are in the tiny, tiny little epistles, the little letters from the same author of Revelation, John. You'll find it in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, 2 John chapter 1, and verse 7, the Antichrist. Okay? But he goes by other names throughout Scripture as well. You know, anytime you have a criminal, you also you know, you'll see in these television shows, they run their history and they get all their aliases goes by this guy and also goes by this name and goes by this name. The same is true for the Antichrist. Yes, the term Antichrist is employed, and that's what he's known by. But in prophecy, in the books of Daniel and Revelation, you don't find the name Antichrist. In Daniel, chapters 7 and 8, and trust me, we're going to be going to all these places, don't worry. But in Daniel, chapters 7 and 8, it's not called the Antichrist. He's called the little horn. 
Now you may think, little horn? What? <laughs> I've never heard of the little horn. I've heard all about the Antichrist. But who's this little horn? Well, we're going to go there. And again, it's, uh, just to give you a heads up, it's not an actual little horn. <laughs> it's a representation of that same Antichrist power. Okay? Daniel calls him the little horn. Revelation chapter 13, by the way, Revelation also, uh, Revelation chapter 13 does talk about the Antichrist, but it calls him the beast, specifically the beast from the sea. But over and over in the book of Revelation, while you don't see the word Antichrist, you will have reference to the beast. And the beast did this, and the beast did this. In fact, you probably know something very famous called the mark of the beast, right? That's the Antichrist power, just with a different alias, just a different name. And I'll demonstrate from Scripture that all of these names are synonymous and interchangeable, talking about the same power. Revelation chapter 17, this same power, this Antichrist power, goes by an even uglier name, the Great Harlot. Depicts it as a, as a woman of ill virtue, if you will, a harlot. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and at this point I would ask you to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, because that's going to be home base for the rest of our message tonight. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 will be home base for the rest of our message tonight. Here the Antichrist power is referred to as the man of sin, that son of perdition. Man of sin, son of perdition. So we have Antichrist, Little Horn, the Beast, the Great Harlot, and here in 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul calls him the man of sin, the son of perdition. So let's go, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, brethren, he says in verse 1, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So clearly he's talking about end time events, specifically the coming of Christ, the culmination of those events, the coming of Jesus. He says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you, verse 2, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Now, I believe the Apostle Paul believed Jesus Christ was going to come back. He talks about it. In fact, one of those beautiful pictures of the return of Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him is found in 1 Thessalonians Chapter 5. You don't have to go there right now, but if you'd like to put it in your notes, go back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He describes the coming of Jesus. So Paul clearly believes that Jesus is coming, but what does he say here in 2 Thessalonians to the same group of people who he described the second coming to earlier? Now he comes and says, Brethren, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Did the Apostle Paul, A, believe Jesus was coming? Yes. Did he believe it was right then? No. Get this clear. He believes in the second coming. He's looking forward to it. He writes about it. He preaches about the coming of Jesus. 
But apparently, someone or someones, as if by the pen of Paul, as if dressing up as a true apostle, was writing that Jesus Christ is coming right now. In fact, his coming is imminent. It's occurring right now. Maybe it's even happened already. We missed it. (laughs) Paul says, look, as much as I told you to believe in the coming of Jesus, I still believe, but don't be shaken by these letters or by these rumors, this gossip that's saying Jesus Christ is coming right now. Don't think that. Now, why would he make that separation? Yes, Jesus is coming, but not right now. Well, he goes on to explain. And it's interesting the language he uses. Verse 3, let no one, what? Deceive you. Apparently, the belief that Jesus, not that Jesus is coming back, but that he was coming right then, was a deception. He says, let no one deceive you. It's as though Christ had said that very thing. Don't let anyone deceive you when it talks about the second coming. Notice it says, for that day will not come unless. Now, I praise the Lord the sentence doesn't end with that day will not come, right? Clearly, he believes Jesus is coming, but he says something has to happen first. There's an order of events that needs to transpire before you can anticipate the imminent return of Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's the Apostle Paul. I want to make this sequence clear. He's living in his day and age, looking forward to the coming of Jesus, but apparently rumor has started to circulate that Jesus' coming is right now, and he says, now slow down. Yes, Jesus is coming, but it won't happen unless something happens first. What is that something? Unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Okay, now. Again, back to our worksheets. We're going to be right back to our study guide in the Bible, back to back here. Again, Paul explains that before Jesus returns, certain things must happen first. Are we clear on that, yes or no? Yes. Before Jesus returns, certain things must happen first. Now, we look at verse 3 again. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless... What is that thing that he says has to happen first? What does he refer to it here as? The falling away comes first. And as a result, the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now, this is interesting. We're going to use our common sense again. We're going to use our brains that God has given us. Go to your study guide here. Notice the sentence. The only things that can fall away are things that were once united. Yeah, you can only fall away from something you used to be attached to, yes? Interestingly, the same phrasing here, falling away, in the Greek is the same thing as the word divorce, to break something that used to be. Now, there are a lot of wonderful ladies in here, but not one of you can I divorce. You know why? Why? Because I'm not married to any of you. 
There's only one person I can divorce, and that's the one person I'm not going to divorce. <laughs> Let's be clear. Amen. But I can have a falling out with you. Can, but we can't fall away in the way he's talking about because we were never united in the way that they're talking about. Paul here is talking about before Christ comes, something that used to be together, united, is going to fall away. And in the falling away, it will reveal the son of, the man of sin, the son of perdition, which is the Antichrist. Again, the only things that can fall away are things that were once united together. Now, these are two interesting terms. Man of sin, son of perdition. It's the only place that the Apostle Paul uses that phrase, the son of perdition. In fact, that phrase, son of perdition, only occurs twice in all the Bible. Once, right here in 2 Thessalonians, and another time it came out of the mouth of Jesus. Now this is fascinating, because we could think that, we could sit here and speculate, who's the son of perdition? Well, I'm not sure what that means, but let's start applying it to people. By the way, this is how people usually do Bible prophecy. They'll look at it and be like, man, I don't know what that is, but it's probably this, right? Well, let's let the Bible interpret itself, amen? Let's not guess. Let's see what God himself has to say on the matter. Who is the son of perdition? Well, let's look. John chapter 17, or page 1045 in your pew Bible. John chapter 17... This is the true Lord's Prayer. Now, at one point, his disciples came and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, when you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And he gives them a model prayer or a sample prayer or a template of prayer. But that wasn't his prayer. That's the prayer he was teaching them, the form of how to pray. Roughly pray like this. But the prayer that Jesus himself actually prayed to his Father that's recorded for us, is found in John chapter 17. Now, John chapter 17 is coming to the close of Jesus' life. In fact, if you go to chapter 18, if you have those headings in your Bible, what's the very next event? The betrayal and arrest in Gethsemane. Right? So this is very end-time events for Christ at his first coming. Right? These are the last days of Jesus Christ on earth. So just before he's going to his death, the bulk of his ministry is behind him now. Jesus is praying. And this is a beautiful prayer. Here he prays for himself in five verses, which, I mean, the powerful humility of Christ. This prayer is, what, 26 verses long? And only five of them he spends talking about himself? The rest of the time he's praying for others. I think that should be a model for how we pray as well. Right? Lord, yes, take care of me, but now that I'm good, let me help somebody else. Jesus models this. He prays for himself, for his unity with his Father. Then he prays for his disciples next. Verses 6 through 19 is about his disciples. And it's in that section where he prays for them that he brings up this term, the son of perdition when he's talking about his own disciples. 
Now, that seems an odd thing to say. Do you think he's talking about John or Matthew or? Well, let's find out. Let's start with verse 9. Jesus praying to his father just before his execution, his betrayal. He says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Well, that's a powerful thought too, huh? That Jesus Christ wants to be glorified in his followers. And he says here, he's praying to his father, talking about his disciples, talking about how faithful they are, how they're glorifying him. Now it goes on to say in verse 11, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them through your name. I'm sorry, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are, that they may stay united, right? Now, look at verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost. Wouldn't it be great if there was a period there? But he says, except the son of perdition. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Now the scripture had prophesied that one of Jesus' closest disciples, one of his 12 inmost followers, would betray him, yes? That there would be a falling away from that unity and that his enemy would come not from without but from within and he refers to this individual whom we know his proper name is Judas correct but he doesn't say except for Judas he gives him a label and he calls him the what son of perdition so when Jesus says, and Jesus is the first person in all Scripture to use that term, son of perdition. So he's coined the phrase. So he gets to tell you what it means, yes? And clearly he's talking about one who was with him, who is closest to him, who represents him in name, but has fallen away and has actually betrayed him. And he says, this is the son of perdition. Now, keep that in mind, and as we go back to 2 Thessalonians, The Apostle Paul is writing about the Antichrist power, and he's thinking, how can I describe how the Antichrist will work? And he says, I got it. There's only one phrase that fits this to a T, and it's only used one other time, and it's directly from the mouth of the Lord, and that is the son of perdition. Notice again what he writes, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Apparently, this antichrist power, this man of sin, this son of perdition, would not be from the outside, but would actually be operating from inside. Acts chapter 20. The book of Acts chapter 20. Here the Apostle Paul is is having a meeting with the believers, the church leaders, not just the believers. I want to make this point. 
He's meeting with the church leaders in Ephesus as he's en route to what he feels, and he's absolutely right. He senses are his final days on earth. He's headed towards his end. And this is probably, and he understands that the last time he's going to be able to speak with these church leaders of these churches that he's built up and he's established, now he's leaving the scene and he says, look, I need to have a meeting with you guys. I want to tell you some things that are on my heart. And this is the same Apostle Paul who wrote 2 Thessalonians, yes? There's only one Apostle Paul. Okay, now, look at verse 28. Acts chapter 20, we're going to start with verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you what? Overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased by his own blood. Who is he talking to, members or leaders? Yeah, he's talking to the leaders, the men in responsible positions in God's church. What is he going to tell them? He says, take heed, watch out, you leaders of the church. And then he says, verse 29, for I know this, that after my departure, and of course, what is he referring to here? He's not talking about just physically leaving town. He's talking about his death, yes? After I pass off the scene, for after my departure, savage wolves will come in where? Among you. The leaders, not sparing the flock. And watch this. And you can think, well, that means they're coming in from the outside. But he clears it up. Look at verse 30. Also from where? Among yourselves. Now, are they going to have enemies of the church outside the church? Absolutely. And you say, watch out for that. But also from among yourselves. Men will rise up. Speaking what kind of things? Perverse things. Now that doesn't mean necessarily sexually explicit. You know, that's not perversion in that sense. It's off the mark. It's incorrect. It's error uh, parading around as truth. Speaking perverse things for what purpose? To draw away the disciples after whom? Now, were they supposed, were were the followers of Christ, the disciples, the apostles, supposed to go and make disciples? Yes. But they were supposed to be disciples of Jesus, not just for yourself. He said they're going to try to rise up in the cloak of church leadership and draw people instead of to Jesus Christ to themselves. He says, watch out. The enemy's not just on the outside. There's going to be a falling away from the inside. Fascinating. So let's go back to home base, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. What is this one going to do? This antichrist power, this man of sin, this son of perdition. Verse 4. Who opposes and exalts what? As Christians, who are we supposed to exalt? Jesus Christ. But apparently this power will exalt himself. Though coming in the cloak of Christ, in the garb of Christianity, it will be actually self-aggrandizing. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called what? God? Or that is what? Worshipped. Apparently, what does this Antichrist power want more than anything else? Worship. To be worshipped as God. 
Notice, above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God, where? In the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Mm -hmm. Now, people will take a hold of that phrase, the temple of God, and say, aha, we got to look to Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild the temple. And then the Antichrist is going to rise up. And he's going to sit on a throne. And he's going to gather all the world to him. And he's going to say, worship me, for I am the Antichrist. First of all, we have to notice something. When the Apostle Paul uses the term the temple of God, he's never referring to the temple in Jerusalem. When Apostle Paul uses that term, the temple of God, what is he talking about? Let's find out. Let's find out. Some of you know, but let's make sure we're square with Scripture. Again, 2 Thessalonians is going to be home base, but let's now go to 2 Corinthians. It's page 11, 15 in your pew Bible. 2 Corinthians, chapter 6, and verse 16. Here he's writing the believers in Corinth. He's writing to them as a collective church of God, and notice what he says. Again, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. He says, And what agreement has the what? Temple of God with idols. Now, is he talking about literal idols and especially a literal temple? No. Because watch, he explains himself. Again, the answer is just keep reading. What's, what agreement has the temple of God with idols for you are the what? Temple of the living God. And what does he mean by that? Is he talking about one individual being the temple of God? No. He says, and he quotes Scripture, as God has said, notice that Paul's argument was always built on Scripture too, yes? I will dwell in what? Them. Them as collective, as a people. The church, right? And walk among them. Now, we're going to come back to this later, in the, but it's fascinating. In the book of Revelation, Christ is seen walking among his churches. In figurative language, but you're going to see it. He's walking among them. And Paul calls that the them of the believers, the church, the temple of God. Again, in what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. And walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be what? My people. Go to 1 Corinthians. It's got your little note there. It says, see also, but we'll go there for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, just to make this point expressly clear. The first time he writes to the church in Corinth, he uses the same terminology. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 16, and notice what he says here. Do you not know? (laughs) When someone says, do you not know, what do they assume you already do? No. He says, what I'm telling you now is not new light, it's not new information, this is elementary, basic Christianity 101 you should already be aware of. Do you not know, he asked rhetorically, that you are the what? The temple of God. And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. When Paul talks about 
the temple of God? Is he talking about a physical structure in the heart of Jerusalem? No, he's talking about the church. Now that's important because we apply Paul's own understanding of the temple of God to his own explanation about the Antichrist sitting in the temple of God. Does that mean then that we should be watching for an Antichrist power who's going to take brick and mortar and actually build up a physical edifice and then take a seat inside of it and say, aha, I am no. Apparently, the Antichrist power we should be watching for is going to sit in the church in the name of Christ. By the way, this Antichrist, people say, what? he's the Antichrist, so he's against Christ. Well, yes, the term anti does mean against, to oppose, but it more accurately means to be in the place of. The Antichrist, the one who eclipses the other Christ and tries to draw people to himself instead of to Christ. You can look it up. Go online. If you have your little, well, I wouldn't say get online right now and start typing it. I want you to pay attention here, but Google it if you want, right? Look up the definition of anti, the prefix anti. It does not merely mean to oppose, but it means to supplant, to stand in the place of. So when we're talking about the antichrist. It doesn't mean it's an open opposition to God, even though he does oppose him. He's going to do it in a way that it seems godly. Yes? So again, back in your notes there, a couple important points. Every time Paul uses the term temple of God, he means the what? The church. And the prefix anti, while it does mean opposed to, it also means in place of. Deposed to God, yes, but how does he get followers to stand in the place of? To stand in the place of the Antichrist. And we've already studied this out in previous nights, but let's go back to Isaiah chapter 14 and jog your memory. Isaiah chapter 14. When we looked at that fall of Satan from heaven, when he was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil of, and Satan who leads the whole world astray, who deceives the whole world. There's a couple places in the Bible where it peels back and tells us what was going on with this being before he was Satan, when he was still Lucifer, the light bearer, the, the ordained minister, if you will, in the courts of God. Again, we'll start with verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 14, and we'll start to understand the spirit of the Antichrist. The prophet writes, how you are fallen from where? From heaven. O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who have weakened the nations. Obviously, he's writing this from once he's been cast out, but he's lamenting, how is it even possible? My word, look at this fall that you've had. But he explains why. What was the motive behind it? Verse 14, uh, 13. For you have said, and where does he say these things? In your heart. So something inside of him started churning. What was he saying? I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the what? The Most High. 
The same spirit that Lucifer had in his rebellion in heaven, the Antichrist shares here on earth. I will sit in the assembly. I will be in the congregation. I will be in the church. And I will stand in the place of God. The same mindset, the same principles, the same perversion that was in Lucifer that caused his fall is going to be seen in his representative on the earth. The Antichrist power. Let's go back to home base in 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He continues, the Apostle Paul here, his discussion of this Antichrist. After he explains in verse 4, when he talks about who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Speaking of which, do you remember when Satan came to Christ in the wilderness of temptation? What was the one thing he wanted? Worship. He said, I'll give you the whole world if you do one thing. Worship me. The ultimate driving force behind Satan's rebellion and his opposition to God is self-aggrandizement. He wants himself to be revered, to be worshipped in the place of God, the only one who deserves our worship. And we see it in his representative, the Antichrist. Again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits, how? As God, where? In the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now he writes in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Remember, Paul's already talked to these people before. He says, this is just a refresher course. I'm trying to bring you back to what I already taught you. Then he goes on to explain. And now you know what is restraining. So apparently this falling away is going to happen. This man of sin, this son of perdition will be revealed, but he's writing to say, but it's not right now. And of course, Jesus can't come until this occurs. So if you get a letter that says, hey, it's the time for Jesus to come, Paul says, I didn't write that. Now, I believe Jesus is coming, yes, but some things have to happen first. Namely, a falling away from within the church so that the man of sin, the son of perdition, will be revealed who sits in the temple of God claiming to be God, wanting to worship as God. He says, I already told you all this stuff before, but then he continues on. What's stopping it from being fully revealed or clearly seen, fully developed? Verse 6 again. And now you know what is restraining. By the way, we're going to answer that question tomorrow night. I have to have a reason to come back. And now you know it is restraining that he may be revealed, what's that next phrase, in his own what? According to the Apostle Paul, was there a time when the Antichrist would be revealed, would become visible, would take its place? Yes. And he says that time is not now, and that first century when he's writing, but it will be before... Jesus comes. Does that make sense? Okay. So he said, it's not now, 
But it's happened before this, and somewhere in this gap of time, somewhere in this expanse of history between the present, from his time of writing, to the return of Jesus, there's a time when the Antichrist will be revealed. Now, this is going to be important for tomorrow night's study. Because apparently, to be the correct Antichrist, it has to show up at just the right time. Paul refers to this. Again in verse 6. And now you know what is restraining. Apparently some force was holding back the maturing and developing the visibly, uh, visibling, that's not a word. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying though, right? The Lord can interpret, praise God. <laughs> that he may be revealed in his own time. Now watch this verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now, apparently it wasn't fully developed, it wasn't fully seen, it wasn't in mature form, it wasn't on its stage of activity, yes? But it was already starting to get going in the time when Paul was still living. Now, pause right here. Most Christians have a picture of the Antichrist being this one power that shows up at the very end of time but Paul's saying, now wait a minute, before Jesus comes, he's going to be revealed, and already that power is already starting to work. Are you hearing me? Notice again. Make sure you see that your Bible says it too. For the mystery, again verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Okay, so there's something standing in the way of the full release and development of this Antichrist power, but the spirit that's under it is already churning. And when that power is removed, the Antichrist will step in right on time and fulfill Scripture's prophecies. Is it making sense so far? Okay. Now, this is a fascinating concept. By the way, the Apostle Paul was not the only one who thought this. Go back to 1 John. When I say back, go to the right. <laughs> Very close to the book of Revelation are these three little epistles, three little letters of John. And notice that he agrees point by point with the Apostle Paul. Of course, we would expect it to agree. It's all coming from the same author, the Holy Spirit, yes? But here, 1 John chapter 2 We'll go to verse 18. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the, here's our term, Antichrist is what? Coming. He said, you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Future tense, right? Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know this is the last hour. He views himself as being part of the earliest part of the end time events because that Antichrist power was already at work. Let's look at another reference. Go to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 3, talking about that spirit of the Antichrist, that mindset 
1 John chapter 4. We'll start with verse 1. This is important. Beloved, do not believe every what? Does that mean that all things claiming to be Christ's or following the Holy Spirit are incorrect? No. But he said, don't believe every one. What should we do? Test the spirits whether they have gone, whether they have God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are false teachers out there. And they might come in the garb of Christianity, in the name of Jesus, but that doesn't make them Christ's representatives. goes on to say, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And look at verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the Spirit of what? Antichrist. Now, check this out. Which you have heard was coming... And is now what? Already in the world. The Apostle Paul talks about it. John talks about it twice before he even writes the book of Revelation. He's talking about this is the Antichrist power. You've heard it's coming, and it's true, but it's already the spirit, the machination, the principles are already stirring even now. There's a restraining power, the Apostle Paul says, but when that is removed, it will come into its own. And it will do so right on time. Mm. Friends, let's review the evidence of tonight's message. Think about it logically. Since knowing Jesus Christ means the hope of salvation for us, Satan is continuing his deceptive warfare through his representative, the Antichrist. By the way, it makes only sense... God is the only God. Amen? But Satan wants to be God. God has his representative on the earth, Jesus Christ. Satan has his representative on the earth, the Antichrist. And they share the same spirit. The same spirit of God motivates his son, Jesus Christ. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the Antichrist who wants to stand in the place of God and be worshipped as God, shares the same spirit as his Father. The Bible explains that the Antichrist will, first of all, not be an open opposer of God's people from outside, but a subtle betrayer of God's people from where? From the inside. There'll be a falling away first thing to know about the Antichrist. It's not going to be anti-Christian as you might think in an overt kind of way, but it's going to be working subtly from within. Second thing, it will not be a political or military power. Notice none of the references talk about, you know, militaries and war. It doesn't talk about any of that kind of stuff. It's going to be a spiritual power in the guise of Christianity. It's going to sit in the church. It's not in the world. It's not in the, the, the White House. It's not going to be in some other. It's not going to be in the Kremlin. I mean, it's not North Korea, friends. <laughs> it's a spiritual power who's going to try to stand in the place of God on earth. Yes? Finally, it will not appear suddenly at the end of time. 
It's a great deception out there. People think, oh, don't worry, the Antichrist, when we, he sh- comes, we'll know because he's going to show up right at the very end and he'll make it very clear. No, 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 no. Scripture repeatedly affirms that the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, was already in the world when John and Paul and those first century apostles were writing. And before Jesus comes, it will be fully revealed. So it will not appear suddenly at the end of time, but has already arisen steadily from the earliest days of the church, which should give us pause. Friends, is it possible that the Antichrist is in the world right now? Is he operating with more fervor than ever because he knows that his time is short, that Jesus is in fact coming soon? Friends, if our hope is to be in Jesus Christ, we need to be aware of the Antichrist so that we stay firmly with Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Has tonight's presentation been clear? Please raise your hand if you've understood what has been said. You could disagree. I just want to understand that you got what I was trying to say. Amen? Let me ask you another question. Did all the points that we summarized there come directly from God's Word? Amen. Amen. If we're going to follow Jesus Christ, it's imperative that we learn all about what He wants us to know directly from the source. Not the opinions of men, not the popular society, not culture that's out there, not whatever background. Whatever God's word says is true, brothers and sisters, amen? God's word says that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. Satan isn't stupid. He's going to try to deceive and twist and get you away from Jesus. In fact, stand in the place of him. But if we stand on God's word, we're going to be hand in hand with Jesus Christ all the way. Amen? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you give us information, not to scare us, but to give us clarity so we can see Jesus more clearly. Lord, let not one in this room be deceived by the subtleties and the sophistries, the deceptions of the enemy of Christ. But Lord, help us to stand firmly by faith, and by trust in your word, in Jesus Christ. Especially as we look forward to his soon and sooner coming, sooner every day. Lord, help us to cling more firmly to our scriptures. We know that Satan will work in various ways, through various means, through various deceptions and pressures and temptations and discouragements and distractions. He will throw everything and the kitchen sink at us to get us away from Jesus Christ. But Lord, once we see the truth of your word, help us to hang on for dear life. That we not be deceived, but that we hold the hand of Jesus all the way. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.